Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. A judge does what the legislature will not. It blocks HB6, the corrupt $1.3 billion bailout of the nuclear industry born in a racketeering scheme. That's top of the list today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We have a full house for the final time of the year with Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Wernowski. Welcome all. And since it's the last time we're together, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. May 2021 be way better. <laughs> let me let me be the only one that says Merry Christmas, War on Christmas guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, Chris. Way to go. Let's begin. Do some former members of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission actually suggest the possibility that Ohio should boot first energy out of the state following its involvement in the corrupt House Bill 6? And speaking of the corrupt House Bill 6 passed by the legislature, did a Columbus judge do what the lame duck legislators have so far refused to do and block the corrupt $1.3 billion bailout of Ohio's nuclear industry? Jane Cahoon, yesterday was a banner day for people who are outraged by the scummy doings of our legislature. Let's start with the former well, no, let's start with the judge because that's the big deal. What did a Franklin <laughs> County judge do? Yeah, this was the real the real blockbuster. A Franklin County judge, his name is Chris Brown, as you said, done what the legislature for months has refused to do. He actually blocked the House Bill 6 nuclear subsidies from being collected from ratepayers. This is a preliminary order in a lawsuit that was filed by Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost and the cities of Columbus and Cincinnati. Um, this ruling was the language of this ruling or of the judge anyway, was straightforward and and aimed directly at the lawmakers. He said, frankly, the work of the 133rd General Assembly is quickly coming to an end. As of today, as of this moment, there has been no movement of any legislation and the court feels that putting the ball in the General Assembly's court would be an abdication of my responsibility to decide these issues. And then here's another kicker to not impose an injunction would give the okay that bribery is allowed in the state of Ohio and that, you know, any ill gotten gains can be received. All you've got to do is find the right legislator, find the right speaker of the house. So he, but, you know, <laughs> he it, came it, out with not- guns. Go ahead. But stop right there where he says, find the right legislature, find the right. He's basically saying there's that 
these guys are are viable. I mean, that that is the starkest language we've seen. All you got to do is find the right legislator. They're there. There, there's bums there. Just go go find the right one. <laughs> it's it's like that's not acceptable. That it's that easy. And you know, it's clear that he took his duty seriously to protect Ohioans. This was a result of uh, Attorney General Dave Yost's lawsuit, right? Dave Yost did the yeah. right thing here. Dave Yost and the cities of Columbus and and Cincinnati were behind this lawsuit and and yo said um the ruling proves that the powerful can be held accountable and corruption will be rooted out he said everybody who pays an electric bill whether for their own home or a job sustaining manufacturer they're they're the winners and he says your pocket will not be picked so but it's um, sad that the judge is pointing out yeah the legislature's done nothing i mean these people are just lame it's like we're getting like rumblings that that's the lawmakers are you know not happy about or some of them are are not happy about this but they've been embarrassed here by this judge who's like hey you guys have done nothing about this and so there right. you have it. And they're the ones that created the mess. Even if they didn't know there was corruption, and God knows how many of them did know, but even if they didn't know, they did vote on this thing. They created this corrupt mess and they have refused to fix it. And that that's just that's not the way government's supposed to work, especially when everybody else has said, stop it. And you know, and then we had news that Jeremy broke Sunday, that Bill Seitz was in some back room making a deal with the owner of the nuclear plants to let him keep the money. I mean, what? why would the owner of the nuclear plants even have a seat at the table at that point when this thing has been so corrupt? It says a lot about where Bill Seitz's priorities are. All right, let's move on to the Public Utilities Commission former members, because they also had blockbuster stuff to say. Three of them signed a letter together to Governor Mike DeWine. We'll get into his response in a minute. What did the letter ask for? Right. The letter was sent to DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston and to the PUCO. They really called for much more aggressive action against First Energy, including hiring a third party investigator to review the company's recent actions and evaluating whether the company should even continue to be allowed to do business in Ohio. These former commissioners, uh, Ashley Brown, J. Michael Bittison, and Todd Snitchler, they said, you know, we got to do more to re- to restore the public trust in the PUCO. You know, this follows the resignation of Sam Randazzo as PUCO chairman, which, as we know, came uh, a day after First Energy disclosed a questionable $4 million payment made in early 2019, just before Randazzo took over as chairman, to an entity associated with an unnamed person who subsequently was hired by the state to regulate utilities. And as we know, his home was also searched by the FBI. But so they're they're saying that, listen, the PUCO has the power to force sweeping changes at First Energy if it chooses to. So they they really came on strong in this letter uh, about that. The idea that First Energy would have given $4 million to Randazzo, which looks pretty clear, that that just shakes your faith in everything having to do with this commission. It's kind of surprising that Mike DeWine has so far stood by this guy knowing that this is out there. 
but but he has the the idea that they're suggesting first energy shouldn't be allowed to do business in ohio is fascinating because i think a lot of people feel they shouldn't they've abused their privilege 60 million dollars that's used for bribes really does negate your credibility to serve the people of ohio but for them to come out and say that should be a possibility in this discussion is staggering so we got hold of this what sunday night did the story it was up most of the day yesterday and at two o'clock, Mike DeWine <laughs> has his coronavirus briefing and Laura Hancock asks what his response is. What, what was his ridiculous response? Well, I first of all, when Laura asked the question, you could see the governor nodding, like almost in recognition, like that he was aware of this letter. I mean, I think he clearly was. But when it came time to answer the question, he said, I've not read the letter, so I'll wait until I have a chance to look at the letter. But I will certainly look at the letter. So, I mean, was this okay. a dodge? <laughs> On Wednesday, when if we get another chance to ask, we should say, okay, have you read the letter? What the hell are you going to do? It is a dodge. My bet is somebody briefed him on the letter so he can honestly say, I haven't read the letter. But he knew what the letter said, and he ducked right. it. He doesn't want to right. address it. And he just said, well, I've made my feelings clear. No, actually, he hasn't. He, he thinks it should be repealed after initially saying it for a day it shouldn't be. But he has not addressed the idea of a much deeper investigation into what's going on at the PUCO. So, and we should say he's responsible for appointing the, you know, Randazzo and the other commissioners. Yeah, and some of that we not. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Well, I won't get ahead of ourselves on who yeah. the possible people are. So, okay, <laughs> Chris, uh, Laura, this is kind of outrage day on HB six. You guys don't have anything you you'd like to add to this conversation. I can't believe that we're still, you know, this broke in July and we're still talking about, you know, possible reform. You'd think that they would be like, <laughs> okay, we're going to fix this. Um, we got nothing else to do. We can't go anywhere. Let's, let, you know, because of coronavirus, let's get it under control. But nope, they just keep putting it off. They are supposed to meet today, the law, the lawmakers. So we'll just have to see what transpires. Hey, my bill isn't going up and people might go to jail. What more can you ask for? Okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you, Chris Wernowski. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does the family of the late Brendan Kaikis, I think I've said that name correctly, say Cuyahoga County should pay dearly for his suicide in the Cuyahoga County jail? Chris Wernowski, this was one of the, the most, all the deaths in the jail are tragic, but this was may have been the most preventable uh, but for the incompetence that that we discovered, uh, our reporters discovered following his death, what is the family saying in its lawsuit? Right. So he took his own life on December 27, 2018. And in a lawsuit that was recently filed uh, by his surviving family, um, they are alleging that the jail staff knew that he took medication for bipolar disorder and depression. And then he had tried to take his own life two days before his arrest. And he had never received any medical screening at the jail and was placed in general population instead of suicide watch, which would be sort of the normal protocol. And um, and basically the family saying that this was a preventable, preventable death and one of eight that had happened within a in a very short span of time between, you know, 2018 and the summer of 2019. You know, this is this is one of those just. You're right. I mean, it's a it's a tragic story, but people people don't really 
you know, have a lot of sympathy for guys like this because they're in jail and they think, well, you know, they should be there. And 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 what's fascinating and in a story that actually published this morning, this is one of 27 lawsuits that have been filed over uh, jail deaths or misconduct among staff uh, at the county jail. And this, this, the county thus far has paid one point three five million dollars to settle all of these, some of the, some of these lawsuits. So, you know, this is one of many, many lawsuits that are related to the sort of inability to take care of the people that the, the jail or the, the county puts in its jails. But, but it's not uh, just us though, that are pointing out the problem here. The former jail warden in an interview with investigators, didn't he identify this one is a very preventable death? Yeah. And, you know, he said that this is something that could absolutely have been avoided. This was uh, Eric Ivey, I believe, who who made those statements. He he basically said, you know, look, this is this is one of those things that that we should have been on top of. And we were not. I mean, when somebody has come in that, that has tried to commit suicide and with all the evidence they had, it does blow your mind that they let that one go. So it'll be interesting to see how much the, the county pays for this, the the, the outrage of this one. Um, probably drives up the dollars. The mismanagement of that jail is costing taxpayers handily. How many lawsuits total is in the story today? Um, we've had 27 lawsuits already. And that's just, you know, we've had additional people pass away in the time that, that you know, that this story covers. So there there are probably lawsuits that are still outstanding that we haven't seen filed yet. So, so I can, I can imagine that, that by the end of this, we're going to be up and upward into the maybe five to $10 million in, in settlements, which, you know, is not a substitute for life for, for people who, you know, who may have messed up may, you know, and, and remember a lot of people who are in jail have mental health problems are there because they have mental health crisis and the police are the only people that showed up or, you know, because, they can't afford to get out of jail right. or, you know, I mean, right. there's, there, there's just, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot of reasons why this is stuff like this is tragic, but you know, those are the two big ones. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. I'm not flying anywhere this holiday, but for people who are rejecting the advice of health officials and traveling and 3 million did over the most previous weekend, can they get tested for the coronavirus at the Cleveland airport? Laura Johnston, Susan Gleiser put this story on the site yesterday. It was a little bit of a surprise. How does that work? Yeah, you you can absolutely get it. You can um, get an antigen test. You can get the results in 15 minutes. So a PCR test will take you 24 to 48 hours. But um, it starts today. It's a Georgia company called Tackle Health. And Hopkins is the third airport to get Tackle Health text, uh, testing after Grand Rapids and Pittsburgh. Other airports in other places may have different companies. So the um, testing is going to be in the main ticketing concourse near the central TSA checkpoint. Because it's in the public area, anyone can get a test. You don't have to fly anywhere to get it. So this will be interesting to see how many people take advantage of it. You know, this becomes a much more acute thing because of what's happening with that mutation of the virus in England. And people are flying to America from London, six flights a day into New York, I read, and I'm sure they're flying in elsewhere. So, so you know, before it was like, yeah, I'll get tested before I go visit grandma kind of thing. But now <laughs> you're kind of worried that that this very, very quickly spreading uh, uh, mutation is coming. I think a lot more people will want to get tested at airports before they fly, because that's going to be how it gets into the to the country. Somebody flying to Cleveland 
through New York from England could be bringing it here. Um, they, they don't take insurance though, right? So you got to pay no, for this out of pocket. No, they don't take insurance, and it's it's pretty pricey. Uh, the antigen test is ninety five dollars. The PCR is one hundred and thirty five. And if you're going to take it and get on a plane, and then you find out two days later once you've got to your destination that you have coronavirus, yeah, it's a I'm not so sure that's going to be helpful. Yeah, it's that we'll have to see, and you know, very soon I think we're going to see that home test available as well, the one that the FDA approved. So testing's going to get easier. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. How far has the number of Ohioans hospitalized for coronavirus treatment fallen, and are the trends overall for the coronavirus still going in the right direction in the state? Jankoon, the numbers are still staggeringly high compared to summer. But but they can't get better until they crest and start heading down. And we keep seeing signs of that, right? Right. After these sharp increases that we've seen through much of the fall, both the coronavirus cases and hospitalizations have started to decline. And as you said, we got to make it clear they're both at unacceptably high levels, but we are seeing this de- this downward trend. So the 58,752 cases reported over the last week marked the lowest seven-day total since the first days of December. And the numbers of patients in in hospitals the last three days have been at the lowest levels since late November. There were 4,807 coronavirus patients hospitalized across Ohio. This is according to the preliminary count from the Ohio Hospital Association. But that's down from the record of 5,308 on Tuesday, December 15th. Uh, So... That on the first day of fall in September, there were there were only 590 patients, including 199 in intensive care. But that ended up shooting up really sharply to 1665 by the end of October and tripling during November to to over 5,000. But as I said, you know, as of as of yesterday, it was about 4,800. So. The numbers look like, you know, fingers crossed that they're going in the right direction. There are a couple of factors that could change that in a hurry. One is already people are traveling for Christmas. We didn't see the post-Thanksgiving surge. Everybody said we would, but already we're seeing more people traveling than traveled for Thanksgiving. And we're still days away from the holiday weekend. And the other factor is this this English mutation that makes the virus, what, 70% more contagious. It's spreading like wildfire in the places it's been. It's now been detected in a handful of additional countries. It, it will spread. We're going to be in a race now to get people vaccinated before that gets everywhere. But with holiday travel, with that mutation out there, we could see these numbers reverse again, right? Right. And that's why you saw Governor DeWine and Dr. Vanderhoff yesterday, once again, imploring people, hey, you know, we did a pretty good job over Thanksgiving. We didn't see that gigantic surge that that we feared. But, you know, we got to do this. The, the Christmas holidays are longer. It's a longer period of time, Christmas and New Year's. And uh, we got to we got to keep doing this until the vaccine's widely available. Well, I hope you all. Stay home and stay safe and don't get the coronavirus. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Was Kent State University hacked by Russians along with the federal government and a bunch of others? Chris Ranowski, when I moved to Cleveland 25 years ago, people told me there's no big national or international news that doesn't have an Ohio tie. And who knew? Kent State is our tie to this very strange hacking story. 
bring us up to date. Yeah, I tried desperately to learn how to say all of this in Russian, but I failed. Uh, (laughs) Kent State is among 27 organizations identified by the Wall Street Journal as having software on its computers that gave hackers potential access to data. Um, The the college sort of uh, confirmed this through a spokesman who said that they were aware of the situation and are evaluating it as uh, this serious matter is – Eric Mansfield told us yesterday, but but he also declined to elaborate on exactly what happened and what may have been breached. Uh, so we have no real sense of what what data might have been accessed by hackers. The Wall Street Journal also reported that uh, the Kent State computers were infected with a, a tainted network monitoring software called SolarWinds Orion that allowed hackers to access the network through a so-called backdoor in the code. Um, I, if, if you've been following this, this has actually been one of the, the largest, I think, cyber attacks in, in the history of computing. So, so it, it's, it's attached itself to numerous government agencies, including, uh, some spy agencies, some intelligence agencies, and, uh, a number of private businesses. So, you know, we, we have, I, I think barely scratched the surface of, of knowing exactly what has been hit. And, and how many people have, have been affected by this and exactly what has been accessed. I, you know, I, I have a sense that we probably won't ever know the full scope of all of this. So it's, it's, well, it's because really if it follows true to form with previous large hacks in a year or so, Wired magazine will come out with the full story of it and it'll be fascinating. The, the, I just don't get why Kent State. I mean, you, you've heard about all the other targets of this thing. You know, you can see some sense attacking federal agencies while everybody's, worrying about the election and things, but why can't state university? I mean, I just, I wonder if they have some kind of government contracts that are somehow important in the international scale. Um, I mean, getting student records doesn't seem like it would be high value for the hackers. I, you know, I don't know. I, I wondered that as well, but you know, maybe it's because it's a, uh, a bastion of progressivism and thought and, and has has a, and has a historic, it's historic and a well-known university for, for reasons outside of education. So, you know, maybe it's that it's fascinating. I, you know, I mean, this is, you know, this is modern warfare. This is, you know, we, we invented these technologies in this country and, and, you know, now they're sort of being subverted and used against us. You know, it's, it's, this is, you know, we're a country that spies on its own citizens. So, you know, we're, you know, we're sort of reaping the backlash of, of sort of what we, what we sow a little bit. So, you know, not that I'm defending this in any way, but it's, it's, you know, okay. this is, but I, but I mean, this is, I mean, but you know, we've talked about this before, you know, this is, this is what modern warfare looks like now. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be fighting each other online and then through data and through. Do you have that. a basement filled with survival food at your house? Chris? <laughs> God, I wish. Not yet. I, but, but, but we're getting there. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We don't usually talk about weather, but we're three days from Christmas. What are the chances Northeast Ohio will have a white Christmas? Laura Johnson, I've always marveled at the number of times we've actually had snow on the ground for Christmas here. It's it's more often than I would have suspected. Will we have it Friday? 
It is looking pretty good right now. So on Christmas Eve, uh, there's expected to be a low pressure system that's going to bring this cold front from north of the Great Lakes. And it's going to uh, really force the temperature down so that we get a rain to snow changeover during the day. And that'll be just in time for Santa's sleigh. So um, and then most of the forecasts that we looked at, and we did a post looking at all the TV meteorologists, plus the AccuWeather, National Weather Service, and uh, weather.com, and they agree that there's like a majority chance for snow on Christmas Eve, about 60% or more, and then 40% or, or more on Christmas. So it um, there's, there's a lot of agreement. We're going to check into it again today, but... Um, yeah, it's good news for those of us who like a white Christmas. And uh, then Rich Exner did a really cool piece looking historically that there's a 61% of, ch- of chance of finding at least an inch of snow on the ground in, in Chardon, which no surprise there, um, on Christmas morning, 43% for Cleveland, 38% for Akron, Canton. That's Laura Johnston, ladies and gentlemen, in our weather chair, taking a brief respite <laughs> from her role in our sports chair. Sports chair. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We began with the HB6 fiasco. Let's end with it. Who are the four candidates to head the Public Utilities Commission following the resignation of Sam Randazzo, whose house was raided by the FBI and who appears to have gotten a $4 million payment from the first energy utility he was supposed to be regulating? Jane Cahoon? You can't you can't have enough of this story. Um, in this case, there's some controversy with a couple of these people. Who are they? Well, first of all, we should say these names were submitted to Governor Mike DeWine, who who makes the appointment. But this not nominating council, they they first had narrowed it to eight candidates and then uh, they interviewed them. And Monday they winnowed it down to four. Uh, the first is Angela Amos, a senior policy advisor for the federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is the federal equivalent of the PUCO. Uh, Ohio Supreme Court Justice Judith French, uh, she's a Republican who just lost re-election to her seat on the Supreme Court in November. So she will be leaving office. She previously worked for the Ohio Re- Environmental Protection Agency. Greg Poulos, Executive Director of the Consumer Advocates of the PG- PJM States, That uh, group advocates for electricity customers in the PJM, which is a regional energy marketplace that that includes Ohio. And last but not least, Ann Vogel. Uh, She's an assistant policy director in the DeWine administration who previously held various legal jobs with American Electric Power. And she is a Republican. And almost immediately, the environmentalists said, you shouldn't put two of those people on. I mean, if you work for AEP, you really shouldn't be regulating AEP, right? Yeah, right. That didn't go over very big. And and Judith French took money from the people she'd be regulating <laughs> when she ran for the Supreme Court. It's interesting. She claims her expertise is ruling on utilities cases, which, you know, often was in favor of the utilities. Uh, does yeah. Mike Twine have to pick one of these four or could he just reject them all? And he pick could, them he could reject them all and ask for another four if he wants to. But my personal prediction is that he wants to name Justice French to this job. That, don't ask me for any evidence of that. That's my personal hunch here that that she's, you know. She's got the inside track. But I, as I said, it's based on nothing. Just the governor's you know. office, the employment agency for washed up politicians. I mean, she lost. The voters rejected her. Voters rejected her. And she's a Republican, which is like a major Ohio rejection in a state that Trump won by 8 percent. 
is it appropriate for the governor to reemploy somebody that the voters basically said, we don't want you anymore. Go away. Well, he might argue that she's, you know, she's got a good reputation as a jurist and that she could restore some credibility and respect to uh, an agency that badly needs it. How do you say she has a good reputation as a jurist? She was the incumbent Republican in Ohio (laughs) and she got booted. I mean, I would say that that's a bad reputation. Voters who voted largely Republican in this election didn't want her. There's got to be a reason for that, right? And she didn't get a lot of endorsements because she's not looked upon as the greatest jurist. It just seems like that would be a um, an easy out. And and at a time when you're trying to build credibility for that thing, yeah. you know, you should get somebody. I think she was, uh, you know, got good ratings, though, from the various bar associations and stuff. She's not. <laughs> She's not some hack who's on there. But come on, anyway. come on, bring it, Jane. Let's keep fighting. On yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> I All don't right. want to really argue about it. I'm well, just, I can, can I add that if I listen to the governor, I, I don't see anything wrong with Puka's credibility. Nothing is wrong. Everything is fine. <laughs> and, and, and nothing happened. Right. Everything <laughs> is good in the state of Ohio. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Short episode today. I guess the news is winding down as we get closer to the holidays. We will have Are two. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's big news. It's just there's fewer pieces of it. We will have an episode tomorrow. We will have an episode Thursday. And then we will not be back until January 4th. And, Laura, this is your last appearance this year. So I hope you enjoy your time with your family. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. 